Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is time for Felony Friday. Felony Friday, of course, is a weekly show here on the Lions of Liberty podcast that focuses on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. This is episode number 68 of Felony Friday. So that means you'll be able to find links and notes to everything that I'm going to talk about with my guest today at lionsofliberty.com slash FF68. Let's not waste any time and get right to the reason why you're all here today. Let's get to this interview. My guest on today's show is Nazgul Genrush. Nazgul studied economics at the University of Pennsylvania. She then moved to Los Angeles for graduate school and received a PhD in sociology from the University of California, Los Angeles. She has worked as a researcher for the consulting firm Monitor Group and at Columbia University's National Center for Children in Poverty. In Los Angeles, she contributed to the Ban the Box reform efforts to enhance employment prospects for people with criminal records and worked on campaigns to restore voting rights for people with felony convictions. Currently, Nazgul is a research analyst at the Sentencing Project, which is a nonprofit organization engaged in research and advocacy for criminal justice reform. She's agreed to come on the show today to talk about a very important issue. She's put together a report at the Sentencing Project. It's called Delaying a Second Chance, the Declining Prospects for Parole on Life Sentences. Nazgul, thank you so much for coming on Felony Friday. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's great to have you here. And I think we're going we're gonna to be talking about some issues today that really I haven't touched on a lot on this show. I've done, you know, we're close to 70 episodes on the show and we haven't really focused on the plight of lifers, of people who have committed violent crimes. So I do want to get into that. And that's essentially what most of your report focuses on that you put together for the sentencing project. But before we do that, before we get into the report, I do just want to ask you some questions so my audience can can, uh, get to know you a little bit better and learn about your passions and how you became inspired to really pursue this career in criminal justice reform. So what, what led you down this path? Well, I moved around a lot as a kid. I actually went to four different high schools, and some of the high schools that I went to were in New York City. Um, and so my exposure to that environment after having lived in Toronto and Canada and then afterwards in South Carolina made me really curious to understand sort of these very different settings that I found myself in as a teenager. And so when I was in graduate school, I was trying to think about a research topic where I could grapple with issues of poverty, of um, inequality, racial inequality. And so I look, you know, tried to figure out what topic I would work on, met with people that were involved with various organizations in um, South Los Angeles, so what, what, what was formerly called South Central Los Angeles. And I came across a group that was led by a woman who was formerly a lifer. Um, so she had served a life with a possibility of parole sentence. And after being denied parole repeatedly, she was finally able to be released after serving over 20 years. She had uh, been convicted of killing an abusive partner. And once she was released, um, in the, this was it took her a long time to get released, even after... 
her partner's family advocated for her to be released. California's governors and parole board were still reluctant to release her. But when she got released, she was helping other lifers and families of lifers to figure out how to navigate the process. And I just really clicked with them. And I realized that mass incarceration is something that people need to think about if they're interested in, in addressing issues of inequality, economic and racial inequality in our country. And, and then I, as I you know, did the research and thought about how to situate the work that I was doing within the broader debates that were happening on mass incarceration, I realized that we needed a lot more attention on people serving sentences for violent crimes. Um, and so I can talk a little bit more about that if that would be helpful as well. Sure. Yeah, I do want to get into get into your report for the sentencing project. Um, but before we do that, maybe can you just give us a, an overview of what the sentencing project is, what its what its mission is? Sure. So the Sentencing Project has been around for over 30 years now, and we're an organization that uh, does research and advocacy in support of um, uh, creating a more fair and effective criminal justice system. So uh, we produce our own research. We help to synthesize uh, academic research so that um, uh, legislators and the general public can understand what's the what's the best um, uh, you know evidence based ideas out there in terms of um, criminal justice policies and what kind of criminal justice reforms should we be pursuing? On, on the show in the past, uh, we've talked a lot about the positive steps that have been taken for criminal justice reform, uh, most notably for nonviolent drug offenders. And there's been a lot of people released from prison, which which has been a good thing. Um, there's been a 5% overall reduction in the U.S. prison population over the last several years, decade or so. Um, however, your focus, like like you're saying, is has been different, and your focus has been more on people that have been uh, convicted of and served time for more violent acts. So you talked about a little bit what led you to this focus, meeting that woman who had, you know, been convicted of of uh, homicide of of murdering her uh, her abuser at the time. But mm -hmm. I'm curious, was that was that what one of the things that led you to dive into this topic specifically to put this report together? Or was this something that kind of was, was a combination of other factors? Mm -hmm. Well, so my dissertation research as a grad student was focused on the work that um, that this organization was doing. And because of university rules about confidentiality, I'm, you know, I usually use pseudonyms for her and the organization. So I unfortunately can't tell you the real names of everyone that was involved. But um, so that was the focus of my research. And then when I came to the sentencing project, I've worked on criminal justice issues more broadly, looked at the kinds of reforms that you were just talking about and, um, you know, highlighted the fact that some states have done really well, like New York, New Jersey, California, have reduced their prison populations by over 25% in the last 10 or so years, which is really outstanding and, you know, really um, set the uh, you know, help kind of set a challenge for other states to be able to keep up with that kind of decarceration. The work that I've done at the Sentencing Project has been to highlight reform efforts around the country to show that while overall the prison population has come down slightly in the last couple of years, and that's 
that's, uh, you know, it's a modest reduction, but it's also a tremendous development because that's after more than 30 years of relentless increase in the prison population. But some states have done really well um, and really set the bar high for others that are trying to uh, reduce their levels of uh, their prison populations and, and, you know, try to scale back mass incarceration. So I've looked at a lot of issues. I've looked at racial disparities in the criminal justice system. And and I wanted to come back to look at lifers in this way in order to sort of build on the understanding that I had from working with the um, families and romantic partners of lifers in California and with the lifers themselves, because I knew that California was unusual in certain respects. So in California, if you're granted parole, uh, you have to have that um, that decision approved by the governor before you can be released. Um, that's very unusual. Most states do not require their governors to uh, to review and finalize a parole decision like that. Um, so the purpose of the report was to basically look and see, well, what's happening in terms of time served? How much time are people serving in prison if they have a life sentence before they're paroled? And um, we expected that there would be an increase, and of course we found that there was. But then I think the unexpected part of the the report for me was in trying to figure out why that has happened, why time served has increased, basically doubled um, for paroled lifers between the 1980s and the most recent period, which we the most recent kind of long decade of 2000 to 2013, which we looked at. What what do you think are some of the reasons why why that has happened? Is this really just a case of politicians, probably mostly on on the right side of the aisle, that are you know running running these campaigns based on being tough on crime? Is has that played into it? Oh, that's definitely a big part of it. I mean, even if you think about right now, when the climate uh, on criminal justice issues is quite different, uh, notwithstanding the climate just around in around the White House on this issue, which is a little bit um, departs from where things have been going around the country and, and, and within uh, state legislatures. Um, but, you know, we have a, a more willingness to talk about the problems of mass incarceration and, um, and to realize that we've overdone it. We've sent too many people to prison. We've sent them there for too long. And in particular for low-level uh, nonviolent drug offenses, many people that are in prison for these kinds of offenses just have no business being there at all. They, you know, we're using the wrong tool to address the problems that they're facing and that, you know, that they pose in our communities. But even still, there is a great deal of reluctance to scale back prison sentence for, sentences for people that have committed violent crimes. And sometimes you actually hear the rhetoric and you can see it in the legislation where criminal justice reforms for nonviolent, not, uh, not low-level offenses are coupled with the idea that we need to really, you know, save prison space for people with violent convictions and keep them there longer. When actually, we already keep people there for too long for those kinds of offenses. And that's a major reason why we have the problem of mass incarceration. So if we were to magically end the drug war now, release everybody for a drug offense, we would still have way too many people in prison, far more than, you know, far higher rate of incarceration than our peer countries. And so given that we have half of the prison population at this point is there for a violent offense, most of these are for robberies or assaults. These are the kinds of violent offenses we're talking about. We need to begin to think about 
reforms for violent offenses. And I just wanted to, you know, with this report, lay the groundwork for thinking about why we need to scale back sentences for even the most violent crimes. Most lifers were convicted of homicide. Uh, it's really important to understand why we're overdoing it, even for that offense, which you know, it's hard to to forgive. It's it's not you know it's not it's something that we would all agree that people who've com committed that crime generally need to be incarcerated. But then the question is for how long, and that's the real you know that's the real um, question that we need to answer because it has ramifications for how we sentence everybody across the spectrum. When we send people to prison forever for. 30 years, for 25 years, for a homicide, that makes it seem like a one-year sentence for a drug offense, a two-year, five-year sentence for a drug offense is not a big deal. It's proportionally much smaller, but it's only because we're so extreme at the outer end. It really comes down to looking at your criminal justice system as a whole. What What is the goal? What is the intention? Is the intention to actually reform people and prepare them to re-enter society, or is it just a, a place to, to hold them away from society to you know, keep them locked in a cage until they die? So what, 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 is, what is the goal of this? And I think that's one thing that you know, it's really not, it's not debated anywhere that, 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 that I've heard. It's definitely not debated in, in, the main, uh, in the mainstream political culture. So I think that's, that's one important thing. Uh, one question I did want to ask you that I think some people will be surprised by, but what is the overall recidivism rate for lifers who are, who are granted parole? Right. So for lifers, it's very small recidivism rate. You know, some studies show that, you know, some researchers that have looked at this in California, they say that it's a minuscule rate of recidivism, something like, you know, like 1% recidivism rate for a small group that they looked at. Whereas for the broader prison population, it's something, you know, generally over a third are reincarcerated. But, you know, to understand th those numbers, we need to realize that the reason that happens is because we keep people incarcerated for so long. So if you're letting people go in their 60s from prison, of course they're going to have an extremely low recidivism rate. But we shouldn't really think of a recidivism rate that is that low as a success because it means we've kept people in prison for too long. As, as strange as that sounds, I mean, what we need to be doing is letting people out earlier. And that means that some of them might trip up and, ha and you know, get back entangled into the justice system at a higher rate than we see right now. But what it also means is that we're not spending $30,000 a year on average to incarcerate such a large number of people when they're in their late 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and older. Uh, and that's money that we could spend much more effectively to prevent crime from happening in the first place. So, you know, I think that um, I, I understand, you know, I, I, I understand that most people wouldn't think that uh, we, sh we should take it easy on people who've committed murder or other very serious violent crimes. But we need to think about, it, you know, what's, I think what's driving that idea is that we're angry about those crimes. And ideally, we want to prevent those kinds of crimes from happening in the first place. If that's, a, if that's our goal, and I think that that's our shared goal, then we need to rethink how we're trying to achieve that. Incarcerating people when they're elderly, um, it's not serving as an effective way to incapacitate someone because most of these people are very unlikely to commit crime again. It's also not deterring other people from committing crime because most people expect to get 
get away with it. Most people, when they're in the act, in the heat of the moment, they're, they might not even be thinking or able to think clearly about the ramifications of what they're doing. And in the meantime, we know that effective crime prevention programs like um, uh, you know, early education, um, access to drug treatment uh, without, you know, extreme delays for, you know, for, for broad sections of the public. These are things we've underinvested in while we've gone overboard with keeping people locked up for a long time uh, when, they don't, when they no longer pose a threat to public safety. I think that's a really interesting point you made about the recidivism rate being low, not necessarily being a good thing. Because, of course, if you wanted to take it down to zero, the most surefire way to do that is just not let anyone out of prison. And then nobody would there'd be no recidivism rate. So that, that's that's an interesting point I hadn't thought of before. Um, I, I did want to ask you about. So in your report, you did highlight uh, four states specifically, California, Georgia, Missouri and New York. Um, what, what were what were the reasons why these four states were were picked to be highlighted, and what were some of the common themes that led to lifers not being granted parole in these four states? Okay, so we picked these four states because, well, California and New York, because they're number one and number two in terms of their lifer population. So in California, over 30,000 people, about a quarter of the prison population, is there serving a life with the possibility of parole sentence. That's, you know, both huge in terms of an absolute number and in terms of the proportion of the overall prison population. In New York, it's uh, 10,000 people are serving this kind of sentence. We also highlighted Georgia and Missouri just to have geographic variation and because it helped us to highlight the the kinds of trends that we were finding across the states that we looked at. And the report looks at 31 states and the federal system. Those were the ones that we got data from. And so basically what we found was that you can see clearly in, in these jurisdictions a couple things. One of them is that typically when people think of life with the possibility of parole sentences and the delays in being paroled, we think of actually parole boards. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of uh, news articles will focus specifically on what parole boards are doing. And there's actually quite a lot of problems with parole boards in that um, they're generally appointed by governors. And so, uh, you know, and, and, and the appointment will go away if you, if you grant too many paroles. And so there's, you know, comments from former New York parole commissioners to that effect, making it clear that they knew that if they're granting parole too often, the job was not no longer going to be offered to them. And so that shaped their decision making. So the, the parole board's work is important, especially because of this other factor, which is that legislators, especially since the 90s, have increased how much time people have to serve in prison before they can even go before the parole board. So, for example, for a certain range of offenses in Georgia, it used to be that you could go before the parole board after you served seven years. So starting at seven years, a parole board would start to talk to you and see how you were doing? You know, have you rehabilitated? Are you ready for release? Um, but legislators had, have changed those requirements so that at this point in time, you need to serve 30 years before the parole board can even see you for the first hearing. So that really actually reduces the discretion of the parole board. Parole boards used to see people much earlier in their sentences in order to be able to assess their public safety risk. And now mm -hmm. routinely in many states, they're seeing people well over um, their having served 20 plus years in prison. And so that really means that, you know, we we're, we basically recognize that prisons are failing to rehabilitate and we're just we're, we're 
denying the possibility that these people have been rehabilitated or have transformed themselves um, before that initial parole hearing, which we're setting to be so late in time. So um, that was a common thread. You know, we saw that in Georgia. We saw that also in um, Missouri, for example, lawmakers required people convicted of a dangerous felony to wait 23 years beginning in 1994, where previously the minimum sentence had been 13 years. So they just, you know, just very easily like that tacked on 10 years to the sentences that people had to serve. So that was one common factor across these places. Um, you know, and something else that we saw were that the time served for people that were paroled went up dramatically. So, uh, for example, in Missouri, people had served an average of 15 years when they were paroled in 1991. By 2014, they'd served over 25 years. And so, you, you know, this you could see the, the dramatic effect of the changes that I was just describing. Um, some other notable things I mentioned that in California, the governor can overturn the parole board's decisions, um, and governors had exercised that authority um, very heavily in the past. Under Governor Brown now, he's been uh, approving a majority of the parole board's decisions, so a lot more lifers have been getting released. And there are other reforms that I can talk about later that have been taking place in a couple different jurisdictions. And then finally, the interesting thing that we found in New York was the legislature there required the parole board to uh, move away from denying people parole based on the severity of their original offense. If you deny someone parole based on the severity of their original offense, you know the, the, the offense is never going to change. The goal of a parole board should be to see, has this person changed? Are they far less likely to ever commit this kind of crime again? Um, but in New York State, the parole board has basically for many years disregarded what the legislature has required. And so there's been there have been a lot of lawsuits there. The parole board has been held in contempt of court, which just goes to show that, you know, even when even in a state where legislatures are trying to push the parole board to move in the right direction, there's still a lot of resistance. So this is a very difficult issue, um, you know, and it, the, the reform, uh, the push for reform needs to come from so many different angles in order to get at this problem. We're going to take a real quick break to hear from some libertarian podcasts that you should all be listening to after you finish listening to Lines of Liberty, of course. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Hey everyone, the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com. You can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty. Rock and roll. So before reading your uh, report here, I really had no familiarity with 
how parole boards were formed and how people were appointed. Is, is this something that is, is it similar state to state? Is it different in, in every state how these people are, are appointed? And can you talk a little bit more about, I think it was New York, you were saying that the people on this parole board were afraid that if they granted uh, granted too much parole that they would actually be taken removed from the board. So are they are, are these people appointed in um, you know did they have a, like a term that, that they serve is or is it continuous? How does that work? Yes, they generally have terms, um, something on average typically like three year terms, let's say. And uh, there has been great studies that have, that have been done by the Robina Institute and um, that that sort of uh, survey parole boards across the country. The kind of paroling decisions that I talk about in this report is just focused on lifers. But in many, you know, many states, um, state uh, parole boards are looking at early early release possibilities for other kinds of people in prison as well. Um, so mostly they're appointed by governors and um, sometimes by legislatures. Usually it requires legislative uh, approval by a legislative board as well. Um, and so it's a very politicized position. Um, ideally, you know, we would like to see parole boards be civil servants so that they can't so easily be released from their positions based on the decisions that they're making. Um, but even in, you know, even in some jurisdictions where parole board members are civil servants, you don't necessarily see them uh, granting parole at higher rates than, you know, than in states that uh, that that where it's a political appointment and the person has a, you know, a temporary position. So, um, you know, so I think that the, what's missing, uh, to some extent is, and what, you know, my goal of this conversation with you is to help to educate the public about these issues so that legislators, governors, parole boards can feel that if they do the right thing here, they won't be criticized, you know, so that they can realize that, it's a better use of um, public resources, where it's a better investment of um, our limited public safety dollars if we invest in preventative and treatment approaches to crime, rather than if we just, you know, show how much we can overdo it when we're angry with somebody because of a crime that they committed. Absolutely. With these uh, parole hearings, and I'm sure it's probably different state to state, but maybe you can provide some some information on how these normally work. Are they normally in person? Is the is the prisoner normally there present during the hearing? Are they via via video conference or something? And I do remember reading in one part of your report that in some areas the victims of the crime are actually involved in the hearing. Is mm -hmm. that correct? That's right. Um, it's very common in, in most, um, all, all parole boards allow victims to give input to the hearing. And, you know, victims certainly have, you know, I focus here on people that are incarcerated. I think there's as much to say on how poorly we serve victims of serious crime, you know, and how often they feel like they don't get the kind kind of closure that they need from going through this kind of adversarial process. Whereas, you know, in a more restorative justice approach, victims might be able to have a more meaningful, um, if they want, interaction with the person who harmed them in order to have closure for the for the uh, victimization that they experienced. But in as, as things stand now, parole boards all allow victims to either be present at the hearing or to submit written testimony. Um, what's unusual is that they don't actually all grant um, the individual who's 
whose fate they're deciding. So the person who's incarcerated cannot always be present at the parole hearing. And there's been some actually, um, you know, backward movement in this area in the last couple decades where um, parole boards have reduced how much involvement um, the incarcerated individual can have in the process. So, for example, in order to streamline processes, the parole hearings, um, they've moved towards teleconference or video uh, input from the prisoners. So Wyoming, South Carolina, and Minnesota only allows lifers to participate via teleconference or video. Um, They've also, you know, in most states, the incarcerated individual is not guaranteed uh, an attorney. And so they, so, you know, and in some places actually, um, they may, may not even, they're not even allowed to have an attorney in the parole hearing if they would like to have one. So in Kentucky and in New Mexico, they prohibit parole applicants from being represented by legal counsel. So there are all these ways where the parole hearing, you know, experts on these issues suggest the parole hearing should represent, should replicate the original sentencing hearing as much as possible in terms of protecting the rights of the person who's incarcerated, because this is a very important decision that gets made at this hearing, whether or not they continue to be incarcerated. Um, But there's been, unfortunately, quite a bit of movement away from that. And there's been, you know, the role of victims have have been, has been heightened. And the problem with that is, um, and this is something that I learned from uh, reading the work of some parole experts. So Joan, Joan Peterson, um, Edward Ryan and Kevin Wrights have written about this extensively, where they note that victims usually do not know the incarcerated individual as, as that person is now. So they had this terrible interaction with this person, um, you know, 20 years ago often, let's say, and then they are at a parole hearing giving their input on why this person should continue to be incarcerated, but it's not based on any information that they have on who this person is now. And so it's unfortunate because by giving victims such, uh, you know, such high standing at, at these hearings, parole boards are moving away from the question of what is the public safety risk that this individual poses at this point in time? Um, you know, the victim usually can remind the parole board about what happened historically, what this person, you know, the usually the worst thing that this person has done in their lives, um, you know, back uh, back in time, but they're not able to provide input on what should be the most important question for the parole board to answer. I mean, it makes sense to have to have the victims involved. And I, I think, as you as you were talking about there, the, the, the problem is, you know, what what is the weight? You know, if someone's been in prison for 20 years and you're giving the same weight to uh, the victim coming into their experience with that uh, with that prisoner 20 years ago when the crime was committed to to you know what's happened over those 20 years and how that person's been reformed, that's that, that's kind of the issue um, for me looking at it that way right there. One thing I did want to ask you about: you talked about some reforms that can be enacted. So, what types of reforms should my listeners be advocating for? Um, be uh, you know seeking out, you know, talking to their representatives about, um, talking to their family members and friends about to spread awareness about this. What types of changes need to be made in your in your opinion to the system that can help to make it uh, run more smoothly and actually help to get some of these lifers parole that, you know, it's where it's warranted? So the first area I think that listeners can look for is if they happen to live in a state where the governor has uh, authority to review parole decisions, which is extremely unusual, um, they could 
advocate for legislation that's moving to move the governor away from that process so that uh, the parole decision can be less politicized so that it's not based on a governor who is afraid that if something goes wrong, they're not going to be reelected. And so nobody's going to get out, basically. That's been the case in Maryland. Um, and so in states like that, Maryland, California is another place to look at for that that problem. Um, there, there's been some efforts to move the governor out of that process. So there's been legislation moving in Maryland to remove the governor from the process. Um, and of course, the governor is very resistant to that. But it's really important for having a, a system where parole decisions are based on, you know, facts and the best research that we have on recidivism and public safety, rather than on a very politicized issue for, you know, and political calculations of elected officials. So that's one area. Um, another one is to consider, you know, looking at legislation that requires to scale back legislation that has increased the minimum weight for parole hearings. So for example, I mentioned the, um, the experts on parole earlier. So Joan Peter Celia, um, Kevin Wrights, Edward Ryan, they recommend uh, that the initial parole hearing should never occur later than 15 years, that even in the most serious cases, we should have, someone should have a chance to talk to a parole board after serving 15 years. So, so many states are out of line with uh, that recommendation, requiring people to serve, um, you know, 25, 30 plus years. And in fact, um, seven states and the federal government and Washington, D.C. have just eliminated life with the possibility of parole entirely as a sentence. So the only sentences, the most extreme sentences are life without the possibility of parole. And that the only way at least for instance is a commutation from the governor. As an organization, we as the Sentencing Project recommend eliminating life with life without parole sentences completely and giving everybody a chance to be released. Um, uh, and not everybody necessarily is going to get that chance. Not everyone's going to be, we're not going to feel that it's safe to release everybody, but everybody should have a chance at least of being released reviewed. And then finally, the other area of reform has been for juveniles. So people that were convicted under the age of 18, there's been Supreme Court decisions um, reducing the use of life without parole sentences for people that were convicted as juveniles. So um, people under 18 can no longer get that sentence if they have a non-homicide conviction. And if they have a homicide conviction, it can't, they can't receive that sentence under a mandatory law. So they need to be um, looked at as individuals. And that's because um, of science that shows very clearly that people under age 18 have very different brains than adults. And so there should be more willingness to realize that they can change as they mature over time. And so this is um, trickled into uh, policies for life with the possibility of parole as well. So for example, California has required that um, juveniles convicted under age 18, and then recently they expanded it to young people who were convicted under age 23, will get special consideration through the parole hearing to recognize their possibility of maturity and reform. And West Virginia has also gone in a similar direction as 
well, and some other states are doing the same thing to realize that um, if we said juveniles shouldn't get life without parole because we recognize their possibility to develop and mature, then let's not send them into a life with the possibility of a parole sentence that actually doesn't offer a meaningful chance of release. Um, so let's make sure the chance of release is meaningful. And, and ideally, I think as a society, we need to realize that that meaningful chance of release shouldn't be reserved just for people that were convicted as juveniles. Absolutely. I, I think as a society, you know, I think more people need to understand that this is an issue. And this interviews like this, podcasts like this are, are a great way to educate people. So I want to encourage my listeners who maybe haven't thought about this before to maybe share this, share this on your networks and get the word out about this important topic. I do want to ask you, uh, now's the goal before I let you go, where can my listeners learn more about the sentencing project? Um, I'll, I'll, of course, link to this report on the show notes page, so they'll be able to find that there. Where can they find out more about the sentencing project? And also, where can they uh, follow you on, on social media? Sure. So the sentencing project's website is sentencingproject.org, and you'll find this report on the on the website. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at, uh, I'm at, at NazgoldG. That's where I'm located. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this very important topic today. Thank you so much. And I appreciate that. I appreciate your listeners, um, you know, considering these issues with an open mind. I hope you all found today's show interesting and thought provoking. Hopefully it made you re-examine sort of your thought process on what happens with a lot of these violent offenders, people who have committed homicide or violent acts of rape. You know, it's hard to forgive someone that has harmed people this way, that have committed these violent crimes. But really, I think it boils down to one simple question. What is the objective of our prison system? Is it to reform people so they can be eventually reintegrated into society? Or is it just to keep them segregated and locked away in a cage so they can never interact with anyone ever again and will never taste freedom ever again? Now, that's, that's an important question. I don't think it's a question that I can answer right now. I think there's a lot of ways to, to answer that question. I will say that I do want to clarify one point. There's one point that I, I did disagree with. One of Nazgul's statements when she was talking about life sentences, saying that one of the stated goals of the sentencing project was to eliminate the life sentence. No more life sentences without parole. And I disagree with that. I think there are violent criminals out there who should never, ever see the light of day or taste freedom ever again. Because I think if they were released, you know, if they were released again, these people are animals. They're barbaric. And if they were set free, they would continue to rain terror down upon society. And there are cases like that that I think there's people that should never see the light of day again. And I'm not in favor of the death penalty, but... You know, some of these violent crimes that you see, and you see them in the headlines very often, people decapitating others. I don't really think that those people can be reformed. They need to be locked away and separated from society. Nosco did make several points that I, I do agree with, and there was one really good point that I do uh, want to talk about here, take note of here. You know, she stressed that we need... Our law enforcement, our criminal justice system needs to focus on preventing crime instead of focusing on keeping these people locked in a cage into their 70s. People who are no longer dangerous, people who, if released, would, you know, they're really no threat at all. 
and they're just left to to rot away in a cage. So this comes back to that question, what's the goal? Is it just to let these people just sit in a cage and suck up taxpayer dollars and you know, just, just die? Or is the goal to actually reform these people who can be reformed and get them reintegrated back into society? And one aspect of preventing crime that I think is important to talk about is actually getting rid of all these ridiculous laws that are out there, getting rid of these laws that we have in place that are just strictly for generating revenue, getting rid of drug laws, of course, and letting cops focus on violent crimes and preventative measures. I think that would go a long way with, and also if you eliminate the drug war, if you eliminate a lot of these uh, revenue generation schemes, you're going to just inherently in the system, make it a safer society because people will not be driven to the back alleys of society where the only way they can arbitrate their disputes is by using violence. Not the only way, but often a way that it falls to is just the disputes are arbitrated in, in a violent way. And that's how a lot of these violent crimes occur. So bring that stuff forward. And that right there is a big way that we could prevent a lot of these crimes. I just do want to stress again, this is a topic that I, I think we need to focus on more and I plan to focus on it more going forward. You know, so many criminal justice reformers out there, myself included, focus on the low-hanging fruit too often. We focus on the drug war. Not that the drug war isn't important, ending the drug war, of course. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that needs change in the criminal justice system. A lot of things are broken. And my focus definitely on this show has been a little bit skewed towards the nonviolent drug offenders even though my good friend and co-host of our Monday show here at Lions of Liberty, Mark Clare, would have you think that I don't talk about legalizing marijuana enough. You know, he was giving me a hard time the other day that I wasn't going to have a, a show dedicated to 420. This is Aaron now 421. Of course, 420 was yesterday that I wasn't going to have a show dedicated to ending the war on drugs, to ending uh, marijuana prohibition. So I'm sorry, potheads, but I don't make my schedule based upon your holidays. But if this is your first time listening to the show, I can promise you that we do talk about ending the drug war all the time. Almost every show, there's there's some aspect of it that we do talk about. I do want to encourage everyone listening to, if you haven't yet, to join the Lions of Liberty Forum. Um, it's a great place to go where we can talk about these, you know, these ideas. We can talk about the goal of the prison system. All those conversations are happening every day in the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can join it. It's on Facebook by going to facebook.com, typing in that search bar at the top, Lions of Liberty Forum. It'll pop up. And as long as you have a profile picture, that's key. We do see a bunch of people coming through with either you know, a cartoon character profile picture or no profile picture. You're not going to get in with that. Have your, yourself there, a real person with a profile picture with real friends. And it helps even more if you have some, some libertarian uh, posts there in your, uh, in your news feed. If so, uh, we'll, we'll get you in right away without any problem. I want to thank you guys for supporting this show. A couple quick ways that you can support the show even further. Of course, you can share the show. You can go to iTunes. You can leave us a rating and a five-star review. That helps us tremendously. You can also buy some uh, some merchandise from us at our Lions of Liberty store. We sell a stylish beer koozie with Lions of Liberty on it. We have t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, v-neck t-shirts, some, some baseball t-shirts with three different designs. You can find all of that stuff at lionsofliberty.store. So please check that out. 
And also, you can help us on a more regular basis. We have a growing patron program, the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can find out about that at lionsofliberty.com slash support. With that, at that first $5 level of the Pride, you're going to get access to all of our exclusive content, some extra interview questions with guests. We had a we have a conspiracy theory roundtable coming out soon. You get early access to some high-profile interviews. So definitely look into checking that out. Lionsofliberty.com slash support. That's all I got for today, guys. I want to thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. Burning.